You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. Just to start off, gentlemen, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about who you both are and what your current role is within the OSI. Well, good morning, Andrew. Thank you very much. My name is Jude Sunderbrook, and I am the Executive Director of the Office of Special Investigations. So our commander is Brigadier General uh, Terry Bullard, and uh, General Bullard commands the entire organization. I'm his civilian deputy, um, and so I've got responsibilities for a lot of our interagency and international outreach, as, long, as well as our enterprise and strategic management. Um, I've been with OSI for more than 26 years. So I started off uh, as an active duty military special agent. I spent seven years in that capacity and uh, began uh, my last two years working on a PhD part-time. And I uh, elected to go into the Air Force Reserve uh, just prior to 9-11 and to focus on my studies. And uh, what happened after that was, uh, of course, the events of 9-11. I got mobilized and brought back to active duty. And then while I was back uh, in 2001 and 2002, uh, I had the opportunity to become a civilian special agent with OSI. So since 2002, um, I've had kind of a dual track career where I've been a civilian special agent uh, with OSI, um, and I've served in a variety of interagency roles um, and roles with OSI, both in the United States and overseas. And then I've also continued to serve in the Air Force Reserve. Um, and I've been in my current role as the executive director as the deputy to General Bullard for about a year and a half now. Just before we move on to uh, Mr. Phillips, could you tell our listeners how that works a little bit more. So 
you can be in the OSI and be a civilian or be in the military. Yes, OSI is one of the uh, unique organizations in the, uh, the federal government where we have special agents, uh, criminal investigators, who are both, some of them are active duty military, some of them are reserve special agents who have uh, another career, perhaps in civilian law enforcement or the intel community or in the private sector. Um, and then we also have civilian special agents and they are in the, uh, the job series in the civil service that's the same as an FBI agent or a Secret Service agent or many of the people that work in the inspector general ranks of the various federal agencies. So we all go through the, uh, the same training together. And in our initial assignments, uh, we're focused primarily on criminal investigations and learning that craft with some defensive counterintelligence work. And then over time, uh, the military special agents and the civilians they tend to focus on slightly different things with a certain amount of overlap, but it's a, it's quite an interesting organization where you have the privilege to serve with people that are serving in different statuses. And I'm sorry, but we'll come on to Mr. Phillips in a second, but I just want to follow up again. How is the division of responsibility with regards to counterintelligence? So both our military special agents and our civilian special agents work on counterintelligence. So every special agent is qualified uh, and has the authority to conduct both criminal investigations and counterintelligence. So within the federal government, there are three agencies that um, have built a model around having special agents that are criminal investigators that also have uh, counterintelligence authorities. So that's the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is the lead uh, in both dimensions for our country. There's the Naval Criminal Investigative Service that has those responsibilities for the Department of the, Air, of the Navy. And then uh, there's OSI, which has those responsibilities for uh, the Department of the Air Force, for both the Air Force and now the Space Force. And um, we are the only one of the three, though, where we have a, a largely blended workforce with a mix of both civilian and military special agents. And Mr. Phillips, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about how, who you are, please? Yes, Andrew, thank you. I, I serve as the uh, Executive Director of the Office of Special Investigations, Office of Special Projects. Uh, in this position, I oversee about 400 personnel at 41 field offices, uh, delivering security and counterintelligence support, protecting advanced Air Force and Space Force weapon systems, technologies and operations. Um, I joined the Air Force um, as a second lieutenant after graduating from the ROTC program at Auburn uh, University in 1991. And I served on uh, active duty uh, in different roles uh, for seven years. But I started work uh, for OSI as a captain in 1997 at Ramstein Air Base. And that's where I met uh, Dr. Sunderbrook. Um, I separated from active duty in 2001 and rejoined OSI as a civilian in January 2002, as a GS-12 special agent working technology protection operations for the Office of Special Projects for OSI. Uh, I really truly enjoyed uh, uh, working technology protection and, and felt that that was my passion, um, but 9-11 um, uh, happened and uh, I moved to serve as the director of operations for OSI's anti-terrorism specialty team. In that position, um, I uh, deployed to Iraq and, um, and uh, worked in different positions uh, 
uh, protecting uh, the Air Force. Um, I then served as the OSI Director of Warfighting and later served as the Director of Counterintelligence for OSI. I served in a joint duty assignment as the Director of Counterintelligence for U.S. European Command and the U.S. Counterintelligence Representative to NATO. And I've been serving in my current position as the uh, Executive Director for Special Projects uh, for the past four years. One of, the, one of the great things about OSI that I found personally is that we're sort of just the right size as an agency goes in the sense that we have a, a global reach. We have people in more than 250 locations around the world. Um, and we're big enough that you can go your whole career without ever having met somebody uh, who else is in the organization. But frankly, most of the people who have the privilege of serving in leadership positions, we've all known each other for 20 plus years. And so uh, both Terry and I happened to be serving in Germany in the mid 90s. And, um, and I think that one of the interesting things about OSI is that not only we had the chance to serve and kind of grow up in the organization together, I think we could probably point to a few things along the way where we had the chance to kind of contribute to the evolution of the organization. And then along the way, um, it's, it's really a, a family environment. So most of the people who've been around, we, uh, we may not be able to name each other's pets, but we have a, a pretty good understanding of people's uh, family lives and histories and, and where they're headed personally and professionally. So that's, that's an aspect of the, of the organization that I've always appreciated. The, uh, Jude and I both um, had uh, two tours um, in Germany. And uh, we, uh, like uh, Jude said, uh, we met in the mid-90s when we were very, very young in the business. Uh, what is very neat also um, is that we both served in the same positions. Uh, we both served as Director of Counterintelligence for the Air Force, and we both served as the uh, Counterintelligence Coordinating Authority at U.S. European Command. So we've had opportunities to, to share perspectives there at different times in our history. Um, but we also got to, to ski the Zugspitz a few times down in Garmisch also. Yeah, so we're that our our German allies have been very generous hosts with the, the U.S. forces uh, in Germany. And uh, I, I personally, so it's with, with two tours in Germany, I've had a, a, a great appreciation for that uh, partnership between our two countries and frankly, just really enjoyed having the opportunity to live there uh, both times. And I have a, a great deal of respect for their armed forces and, uh, and their uh, police as well. So I wondered if we can, now that we've got a better sense of who you both are, I wondered if you could just give us an overview of the OSI. Um, so I wonder if you could just break that down for us and, and give us an overview of the organization, how it fits within the Air Force, how it fits within the intelligence community. Sure. So, so shortly after the Air Force was founded in the late 1940s, um, there was an effort that was undertaken to decide, um, as the newest service, how criminal investigative uh, and counterintelligence activities uh, should be conducted. And so um, uh, a special agent from the FBI came over uh, and did a study and, and found and made recommendations that there should be an organization that was um, largely modeled on the FBI in the sense that it was going to be a single integrated organization uh, that ultimately had a, a global reach where the special agents would do both criminal investigations and counterintelligence activities. But um, 
that gentleman um, uh, who ultimately uh, became our, our, our first director, uh, General uh, Joseph Carroll, uh, who transitioned from the FBI to become uh, the first director, he, um, he made a recommendation that it be integrated into the Air Force with a blended workforce of both uh, military officers and, and military enlisted personnel, as well as civilian special agents. And, and that model has really stood the test of time. So um, I think the way to think about it is, is that on just about every Air Force base around the world, there is an OSI office, and it's filled with a, a combination of special agents and uh, analysts and uh, professional staff, uh, depending on the size of the base. And on, an, on a base, they provide the felony level criminal investigation support to that installation. So that would be uh, if there was a, a death, potentially a murder or suicide, um, a rape, a sexual assault, um, a fraud, anything that really rises to the felony level, OSI serves that function on the installation. We also provide uh, counterintelligence services on the base um, and, uh, and make sure we have an understanding of uh, potential threats either inside the installation or that might be posed from those that might wish to uh, commit espionage against the base and its personnel or that threaten the base and its personnel. Um, those offices are located around the globe, uh, both in the United States and where we have uh, um, overseas installations where we're guests in other people's countries. Um, and then we also have people that are based uh, in embassies and we also have people that are based uh, in partnership with other agencies. So, for example, we participate in the FBI-led Joint Terrorism Task Forces in different parts of the country, and we participate in assign or detail personnel to other agencies uh, and other parts of the intelligence community. And so the, uh, the broad outline is that um, we work hard to protect the Air Force, uh, both its people and its resource. And then we have some responsibilities to do the same kind of work in support of the joint and defense level entities. And we also do that in partnership with the broader national uh, law enforcement and counterintelligence community. Now, within that broad overview, um, we've got various structures. One of them is uh, the Office of Special Projects that Terry is in charge of. And I'll turn it over to just to him to describe what what his office does and how it fits into the broader national effort. That would be great. Thank you, Jude. The uh, Office of Special Pro uh, Office of Special Investigations is broken down into nine major offices. Seven of those offices are functionally aligned with the Air Force major commands, and then two of those major offices. Uh, support very general functional type uh, missions, uh, procurement fraud, and then the Office of Special Projects that I lead. The uh, Office of Special Projects was established to protect the Air Force and Space Force's uh, most critical technologies, uh, their rapid acquisition process, and research and development. Uh, OSI uh, develops uh, early partnerships with universities, research centers, national labs, and the defense industrial base. Uh, we develop a tailored protection plan that, that integrates security, cybersecurity, counterintelligence, law enforcement, analysis, and inspections. 
and our uh, overarching mission is to ensure that uh, competitors do not use illicit means to steal sensitive intellectual property research or development uh, uh, information. And is, is there a case that each of you have worked on that would help to illustrate OSI's role? Yeah, I, I can offer, um, uh, I think probably in, in instance, uh, and a, a kind of work that I've done and a specific example. So we, the FBI is the, the lead counterintelligence organization for the United States. Um, and we have lots of partnerships with the FBI. Um, I've had the opportunity to work uh, on investigations and operations with the FBI where we have um, worked together to identify uh, and to investigate suspicious activity uh, related to Air Force installations um, and personnel. And so um, I, I think that um, one of the things that we're worried about that is really being part of a bigger kind of a US intelligence community team. Um, we. Uh, we sort of divide up the work, we figure out what's in the different lanes, uh, and then we, we, we really try to pursue things together. So depending on the kind of counterintelligence investigation we're working on, frequently we will pursue leads that have a military context, um, and uh, the FBI will work with them, and there are certain aspects of the work that they do that, um, that they take the lead on, but it's a, it's a good partnership. When we're in an overseas environment, as Terry mentioned, um, uh, sometimes we're looking into threats to our installations. And when that happens, um, oftentimes we're working with uh, the local police um, and or uh, other representatives of those governments. And so, for example, if, if someone on the base notes suspicious activities, we'll, we'll engage with the host country and uh, try to determine if there's something that we actually should be concerned about, or if in fact it's uh, something that uh, uh, turns out to be nothing. So one of the enriching aspects of OSI is that you really get the chance to understand how lots of different parts of the United States government, but also foreign governments, kind of work through different kinds of the, uh, different approaches to the same problem. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So it would be good to focus in on technology protection um, for, for a little bit, but I think before we get there, one of the things that interested me that you have both said is that at some point, you have both been the director for counterintelligence. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe some of the, the cases or some of the threats that you were facing? 
Yeah, I can. Um, I'll, I'll start. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of give two different examples. So um, uh, I'll, before I became the director of uh, counterintelligence, I was in a, uh, a, a branch chief role supporting the director. And um, I can give you some examples from that time and then also from when I, I became the director. So I think that, um, you know, in, in the mid-2000s, one, one of the things that we were really wrestling with was, frankly, how to process large amounts of data related to terrorist threats uh, to U.S. installations as well as to um, our, our forces forward in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, you know, I had had the chance to serve in Bosnia prior to 9-11 and was there um, during uh, the, the conflict in 1999. So I had seen how OSI could posture its forces in a deployed setting and work with uh, international partners, in that, in that case, NATO. After 9-11, as we transitioned to a, a coalition uh, approach, um, and we had forces really deployed in lots of different places. And we also had threats uh, from international terrorists to our military installations, both in the United States and overseas. There was really just a deluge of data that was coming in. And so we really had to think through how to restructure how we process those things. So one of the things that I had the privilege of being a part of was how we built integrated teams at our headquarters, where we had analysts and special agents um, including special agents from a variety of different backgrounds, some who had focused on, on investigations, some who had focused on operations. And we built them into teams where they would look at the threat data that was coming in globally um, and see if similar things were happening in different locations to try to determine if there were trends. This is when we were really trying to automate a lot of our uh, case processing systems as well. And so I think one of the things that, um, I look back on uh, both as a challenge, but as something that I think we did a good job of, was really trying to build those systems to, to scale up rapidly. Um, and uh, I'd say that was something, perhaps that was 15 years ago now, that um, I benefited from. I think later on, um, uh, during the, uh, um, the time that I had the opportunity to serve as the Director of Counterintelligence, that was, uh, about 10 years ago, and that was when I think we were both, re we were realizing that in addition to uh, having to invest energy focused on the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as uh, focusing on international terrorism, this is also a reminder, though, that um, some of the historic threats um, that the United States has faced had not necessarily gone away. And some of that classic counterintelligence, we had to um, we had to learn how to make sure that we were uh, focused on that. So, as the director of counterintelligence, one of the things I had to do was to figure out how some of our younger special agents, who had spent perhaps one tour in the United States, then had deployed to a conflict zone where they were doing the kinds of operations that Terry was describing, trying to, uh, in partnership with others. Uh, try to stop attacks on our people and installations in deployed settings, how we then had to get them postured to, to do more uh, traditional counterintelligence activities. And, um, and so we spent a lot of time trying to retool our training to
to get people ready for this broad spectrum of responsibilities that we have in OSI. And I, I think we made some progress. So I'd say that those were two memorable, memorable things that I had the opportunity to work on when I was serving in those roles. And what, just out of interest, what is the scale of the OSI? Like, what, what, what does your organization look like in terms of numbers? We are about, when you add in absolutely everybody, we have more than 3,000 people. Um, so between three and, three and 4,000. Terry, when you were the director of counterintelligence, what, what was your experience like? Uh, my role, I, and I think my part where I played in, I really focused on programs um, that helped uh, develop our counterintelligence agents to be prepared uh, for the next decade of, of our mission. Um, I, I just came from uh, being the director of counterintelligence for U.S. European Command, and, and our combatant commands are, are phased forward uh, to, to, for contingency operations uh, for, the, for our nation. And um, really coming from that pointy end of executing the mission, it was neat to be able to come back and, and work in the organized, train, equip, assess of our counterintelligence programs uh, to be able to prepare our counterintelligence agents to meet the warfighter needs and, and then the future needs of things like technology protection of our future force. So um, I, I'd like to say that there was a lot of cool time spent studying investigations and and following uh, investigations, but really I spent a lot of time uh, on money, uh, people, personnel, training, uh, those type of program issues. Uh, but one thing, uh, one of the cases that, um, that every OSI agent really has to learn uh, that was happening during that time uh, was an investigation of an individual uh, named uh, Nashir Gwadia. Um, no, uh, Nashir Gwadia um, was investigated by the FBI and the Office of Special Projects for OSI. Uh, actually, my predecessor um, uh, here at the Office of Special Projects uh, was the lead agent for OSI. Uh, Nashir Gwadia worked on the uh, B-2 stealth bomber and various other propulsion projects as a design engineer for Northrop Grumman. Uh, his professional advice included classified information on sensors and, and stealth propulsion systems. Um, after investigations, uh, it learned that between 2003 and 2005, um, Nasir Guadia took uh, six trips to China and assisted gover their government engineers to develop a low observable exhaust nozzle for their cruise, for their cruise missile. Um, this investigation revealed that Guadia discovered um, uh, he was paid uh, $2 million for his work on uh, the Chinese cruise missile. missile and for other secret information he disclosed on the B-2 propulsion system. Uh, five of the criminal convictions were related to his design for the People's Republic of China of a low signature cruise missile exhaust system capable of rendering a, a missile uh, re, um, resistant to detection. Uh, based on his espionage, uh, he was sentenced to 32 years confinement for selling classified uh, design information to the Chinese government and to individuals in uh, Germany, Israel, and Switzerland. This is one of the, the big cases uh, that every OSI agent learns, and um, it was really one of the first uh, major forays for our organization uh, to investigate uh, technology protection. And we took these types of cases, this type of information, and we used this to prepare our agents for the next decade 
to protect uh, advanced technologies for the future of uh, Air Force and Space Force systems. Well, I, I want to dive into the technology protection because I think that that's really fascinating. Just before I do, could you just break down for layman listeners what the difference is between counterintelligence and counterespionage? So I can take a I can take an attempt at it. So one of the things is uh, kind of as a lot of a lot of aspects of the English language is, is the same word can have different meanings depending on who's using it and in terms of what context. For for the military, for the U.S. military and the Department of Defense, counterintelligence um, is a, a pretty broad, encompassing uh, um, spectrum of responsibilities. And, and how we use it in the Department of Defense is rooted in something, an executive order uh, 12333, which is really a foundational document for national security in the United States. And the definition of counterintelligence in there is, is quite broad, and it talks about, um, um, I have the definition, which Terry has helpfully put in front of me, uh, information gathered and activities conducted to exploit, disrupt, or protect against espionage, other intelligence activities, sabotage, or assassination conducted for, or on behalf of foreign powers, organizations, or persons, or their agents, or international terrorist organizations or activities. What, what, what that really means is, is that counterintelligence is a series of efforts where we're trying to detect threats from foreign entities and from international terrorist groups to the United States. Now, in a defense context, counterintelligence is a series of kinds of activities that we do. And the foundation of any good counterintelligence program, in my opinion, is establishing trust with the people that you serve. And uh, so for us, in, a, in an Air Force and Space Force context, this is really making sure that the individuals who, who live or work or transit our bases that they know when they see something suspicious, they should report it to us. Um, and in many cases, it turns out that it's absolutely nothing at all, but they're erring on the side of caution by letting us know about something that doesn't seem quite right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so that foundational work um, it also applies to engaging with uh, commanders so that we integrate counterintelligence into our activities from the very beginning. So um, before we conduct a major military operation, we're thinking through how to protect it, um, depending on the context in which and where we're going to be doing the operation. That kind of counterintelligence foundational work um, is a building block for more specific activities we conduct. And so that could be an investigation, for example, it, where we, we do identify that, uh, no kidding, we actually do have something that we need to look into um, in greater detail. Um, and it can also uh, lead to other activities. There is no super specific uniformly agreed to definition of counter-espionage, but I would say in general, counter-espionage tends to be more focused activities, sometimes that are operational in nature uh, or very specific investigations where there is a specific threat or a specific suspicion uh, that we're following up on methodically. So I think that it's probably best to think as counterintelligence is a broader umbrella term 
And counterespionage is something that is more rooted in a th uh, following up on a specific threat. Um, and I think that um, we can, I, I'm confident that you will be able to find people that will give you different definitions, but I think that in broad terms, those are, are, are pretty representative of what you'll find, at least in the Department of Defense context. And I was wondering, in, in, in terms of engaging in both of those activities, how much do you look at previous um, examples from history? How, how much do you look at, say, the, the hunt for Kim Philby, the hunt for Ames or Hansen? Is that baked into the training for people that do counterintelligence and counterespionage? Yes, absolutely. So I think that the the foundational training that we give all of our agents covers in broad terms how to do this in a, in a U.S. Air Force or U.S. Space Force context. I will tell you, though, that amongst those who do this professionally in OSI, who choose to make it a career, almost all of them have a library that would cover most of the major, um, certainly the cases that you just talked about, but, but sometimes even farther afield um, because the, the fundamentals of doing this business kind of stand the test of time, regardless of the medium through which they're conducted. So I think that many of our, our people who, who choose to specialize in this discipline, they tend to be uh, students of history and, um, and try to see what, sh what is applicable. I, I can give you just a small example, which was that- Yes, please. As, as our, our military worked through how we would um, uh, follow up on uh, the, uh, the initial um, activities in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, I had many colleagues that were rereading were re and examining um, uh, how things worked uh, uh, after World War II uh, in both Germany and Japan and elsewhere. And so I think that um, while history is not uh, an exact parallel, I would say that many of our practitioners um, try to closely pay attention to history and see what lessons might be applicable to, to our current circumstances. Andrew, um, uh, kind of going back to your first question, um, uh, you know, difference between intelligence and espionage, uh, Mr. Uh, Sunderbrook, uh, Jude covered it very, very well. Um, when I was Director of Counterintelligence, um, I attended uh, every uh, graduation of the Air Force Counterintelligence course, and I asked them one question, and uh, that first question was, or that one question was, um, what is counterintelligence? And, and inexplicably, everyone would pull out their definition and, and, tw and 12, triple three, and, uh, and go over it, and, and uh, someone would get it exactly perfectly right. And uh, my, my response was always, um, what does your spouse say when you tell them that's what you do? And um, it's, uh, it's a very confusing kind of definition. It, it encompasses a very broad spectrum of our mission set. So what we try to do is, is uh, look for a, just a short definition that really kind of gets after what we're talking about. And, uh, and for me, that is countering foreign intelligence activities against the United States. And uh, the espionage piece is, is actually stealing information from the United States. And I believe that, that there may be some discussions, uh, differences on that. 
And I think that's what makes our um, profession very special is that we could actually have a long discussion about what that mission is and, and how it relates. Uh, but what I find is if you can go home and, and tell your spouse uh, what you do and, and uh, he or she doesn't laugh at you, uh, then, then you've got it right. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.